Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. Today my guest is Jacqueline Wilson. This New York-based entrepreneur spent 25 years in the concierge business, accommodating the rich and wealthy. Jacqueline was also a Hollywood agent. Now, these jobs eventually left Jacqueline unfulfilled. So whilst going through a life reassessment, Jacqueline traveled to Africa and it was in the Ugandan villages as a volunteer is where she was exposed to the harsh life and living conditions and the repercussions of poverty. Jacqueline also witnessed abuse and boys living homeless on the streets. So Jacqueline was then inspired. She formed the Shoelate Foundation, a nonprofit organization helping to get Ugandan boys off the streets by reuniting them with their families, educating them, feeding them, allowing them to smoothly transition into manhood. Check out Jacqueline Wolfson. Okay, we got Jacqueline Wolfson from Shoelate Foundation. I think I said that right. You did. <laughs> Jacqueline, welcome to Stop, Drop, and Roll. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm so excited. Well, tell us a little bit about you. Okay. So um, I'm actually from Pompton Plains, New Jersey, small town in New Jersey. Jersey. Uh, Jersey. Way to go, Jersey. <laughs> and graduated from university. I came out to Los Angeles and wanted to be in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so somehow after, you know, finally getting my foot in the door, worked my way up to be a talent agent. And one morning woke up and realized, ah, that's not for me. Uh, I was not a good deal maker. So no one was ever happy. Right. right. (laughs) And I couldn't deal with the more cut side throat of the, of the business. So if I could just chat with actors all day, I would be okay. But that's, that wasn't, that's not the job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it just, it just, you know, it stopped feeling right. It just stopped mm-hmm. feeling right. So a friend of mine was moving to New York and said, why don't you come with me? I said, okay, no problem. Came to New York, did a bunch of odd jobs, and then uh, read about this guy in the newspaper that had this personal concierge business. Called him and was like, I could do this. So started working for him, ended up getting my own clients. And then I launched my own personal concierge business. So for over 15 years, I worked for uh, very wealthy bankers, uh, making the impossible possible for them. <laughs> yeah, they, they always want Never the know. impossible, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so you eventually got tired of that. I did, but I didn't know I got tired of that until I took a life-changing trip to the continent of Africa. Mm, the dark uh, continent of love. Yes. And where it all began, it was something I always wanted to do. So for my 40th birthday, I mm-hmm. planned a three-month trip. I visited uh, Uganda, where I decided I was going to do charity work, something I had never done before. So you decided that before you went, you were going to go to Uganda and do charity work? Yeah. So it was part of the trip. It was, um, I wanted to get out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Before I left, everybody bet against me. Didn't think I would be able to last uh, six weeks in a village with no running water, no electricity, 
no comforts of home. And so, wow, your friends I, are really on your side. Huh? Well, you know, I, I <laughs> if back then I would have maybe bet against me also. Mm. And the truth is, within the first 10 hours, I yeah. really did want to leave. I, I just, I, I, you know, I looked at where I was going to have to go to the bathroom, realized there was, there was really no power. Like, I think I was telling myself all that stuff, but didn't believe if that makes any sense. Right, right. Well, you, so you were not in Kampala. We went to Iganga, which is actually a big district. Uh, but now this is back in 2008. So this is a, a ways, ways back. And so it's much more advanced now. But back then, um, and in the house that I was living with, in because you mm -hmm. stay with the, you stay with a local family and I think there was about nine kids at the house at the time there was a great there is because there everyone is still alive there's a great a great grandmother a grandmother and then a daughter they all run the house right and it was just a really a remarkable experience once I got out of my own way and I was volunteering at this orphanage uh, where there was about 124 kids. Wow. I've come a long way. It was really fascinating because these kids, a lot of them had skin rashes mm. and uh, lice. And so they would take my baseball cap <laughs> and then, then they would try to give it back. And I'm like, no, oh, no, no, it's okay. <laughs> keep it. Yeah. <laughs> you just keep it. Now I'm like, dude, give me back my cap. Let me put it back on my head. Um, so and wait, how long did it take you to get comfortable after you got there? Because you were doing the orphan orphanage immediately, right? Yeah. So what happened was you land. We drove hours to get to Iganga. And then the next morning you wake up and you're thrown into this entire different experience. Were you the only white person there? No, actually, though, I was the oldest white person there. Uh, it was a... <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of there was an 18 year old girl there there was a lot of college college oh, kids like peace corps type people yes yes i think i actually acclimated better than them in some in some regards right. uh, which was a little which was a little surprising and i think it probably took me honestly about a week to really just fall in love fall in love with the country fall in love with the people mm. uh never felt unsafe. Um, one time I was walking home and it started to rain and this, these people invited me into their, into their house. Uh, they offered me tea and, and bread, which is amazing because you know that they didn't have enough for themselves. Right. And here they are offering it to me. Is there part can, of their culture, their, uh, their hospitality, their to be yes. generous? to be generous, to be welcoming, um, to, to be accepting. And so, and the interesting part was it was God, 2008. I think Obama was running for president. I was there during the election and they just, everyone was so fascinated that there could possibly be a black president of America. And you're in these villages and they all know this is going on. Right. All those other countries know so much about America and yeah. we know nothing about them. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're really right. We don't. And we have misconceived notions. Mm -hmm. Like we have so many misconceived notions. Like um, what? 
You mean about Africa in general or just I think I think about Africa in general. I think about I think we have a blanket belief right across the continent. I think it's changed over the last couple of years, but you know, everybody, all the babies are starving, right? <laughs> Protruding bellies, girls don't go to school, everyone's selling their daughters to get married. Um, and to be oh, honest, it's, right. it exists, but it's it's in some countries it's the norm. Mm-hmm. But the continent of Africa is 54 countries. Right, right. Well, that's those are the things that the NGOs sort of uh, they publicize that so they can get money and make money off of the continent. Right. You are you are absolutely right. And they keep perpetuating that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so our organization has a farm. It's in um, a village called Jeja, and it's four hours outside of Kampala. And I put a borehole in because the at the time where the water was was really far i actually sorry walked. you said you put a borehole a borehole so what is, what is that exactly you know those wells that you see people drill for for app for communities yes so we did one on the property mm. so that we could have water on the property and then when i realized that my neighbors had to walk four kilometers to go get water every day we opened up the borehole we opened up our water source to our neighbors. Mm. And I thought, right, it's just the girls that are going to come. It's just the women that are going to come. And it wasn't that. If the, if the wife came in the morning, the husband came at night. Uh, sons and daughters came. Grandmothers and grandfathers came. Everybody came to fetch water. Mm. Like they had their own buckets and they carried it back they to, the, to the home or... Yes. Village or whatever. The, the, they're jerry cans. So they would carry these 20 liter jerry cans and they carry them on their heads, which is fascinating. I tried it. I lasted like a second. Um, but the, <laughs> the thing that was amazing is that it just wasn't the women and it just wasn't the girls. And well, why it, did you expect it to just be the women? I'm just curious. Because isn't that what they tell us? But like you said, right, the NGOs paint this picture. Oh, right. Girls don't go to school because they're, they're the ones home fetching the water. Right. right. The wives are fetching the water. The men are sitting around. Like, I witnessed it was a family affair. So everybody was pitching in is what you're everybody getting was at. Pitching in. Everybody. Um, Did you see I, anyone with protruding bellies? Was that because I know that's like a thing that they show you late at night to get you to donate on those shows, you know? So... For us, you do see those protruding bellies, but those protruding bellies are because they have worms. The kids have worms. Mm. Um, they're caused by worms. And so you have, you'll have families that'll eat one meal a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it's not the, Uganda's fortunate. It's not the famine, the famine that you would see um, in some of the, in some of the countries. Uh, especially war toward countries where food just doesn't get to people. Right. But in Uganda, it's a fertile land. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, oh, you can the, plant, there's the, food. The banana Republic, they call it because they're, uh, they call it that because of literally it's a, they have a lot of bananas. <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> they have tons. They call them Matoki and plantains. And right. if you go to a certain area of the country, you see 
millions and millions of these trees. And so there it's, there's food there and it, and it's lush and um, which is a good thing. The weather and the weather allows them to be able to grow, to grow things. Mm. Um, but it becomes that balance that, you know, you're growing to sustain and then you try to figure out how can I grow to also make money? But yes, you do see protruding bellies, but they're worms and they just need deworming. Okay, so what was one of the most transitional things that things that you learned there? Because you also you went there with a sort of a, a perception, yeah. right? Because we come from the West. But what was one of the things that you learned actually being there, like boots on the ground? Um, in Uganda, I would say the importance of education. Mm. I think that was, and that was for importance of education for people's children. People want their kids to be educated because education, you know, it's a status symbol and they would like their kids to go all the way up to university if it's possible. Ugandans understand the importance of education helps move you forward. Right. Being able to educate your kid is a different thing. Mm -hmm. Because unlike here where we have public schools, yeah. they don't have that. What is their system though? Because I mean, most, a lot of people speak English. It's one of the best speaking English African countries. So they must be learning. English is actually the country language. Right. Uh, though there's 147 different dialects in the country. So right. it's, yeah. it's really fascinating. They have what is... Um, uh, there's like a, the public school system, which was opened up. But the problem is, is that you send a kid to the school, but the school doesn't provide food. Uh, it doesn't provide books. Um, it doesn't provide a lot of the things. So if, if a poor family is going to send their kid to school, they have to buy a uniform. Mm. Oh, uh, it's a British school system, right? Yes. Somehow yeah. they, even to this day, no matter where you go to school, the kids have to buy a uniform. Mm. So then most of the kids can't afford pencils, notebooks. Uh, you come home and there's no electricity, right? Those, those stories that you see where a kid will go back to the village and it is really hard for them to do their homework because they can't see, because they don't have power, they don't have lights. Um, and then when you go to take a test, you have to pay to take the test. Really? Like, wow. Yeah. So, because you, you have to, th that's how the school's able to get supplies. So this is even at like a elementary level, right? Not even yes. high school or college. Okay. Right. So this is at elementary. And then it also becomes difficult because sometimes teachers don't show up. A lot of those stories do happen where you, you know, a lot of teachers don't show up to school. Um, a lot of the teachers quality of education might not be as high as it should be for a person to be a teacher. It's definitely complicated, but on the other hand, just like here in the U S we have some really great schools mm. and then we have some really not so great schools, mm. but if you want to send your kid to a great school, you have to pay for it. Right. So you were at, you were in the villages and, and a lot of, I would imagine a lot of those areas are a lot poorer, but are there, how was the economy there? Like on Kampala, 
I know there's slums, but there's also people that are doing well. Yeah. So what did you see firsthand? For us here in the U.S., right, you have people, we don't mix, right, the economic levels. So if you go right. into Beverly Hills, you're not going to see somebody living in, in, a, in a makeshift home. Yeah, or a van or something, yeah. Right. And so even even outside of Uganda, it's kind of interesting because you'll you'll have a nice area and then you'll just cross the line and it won't be such a nice area. So they're all really in close proximity like uh, with each other. Right. So the the someone that's really wealthy may maybe not so far away from someone that's living in a shack. Yes. Yeah, gotcha. like you, you do have that. And Kampala has some really beautiful areas, though. Uh, there's places, Kololo, that are, you know, uh, where the wealthier people live. And and they have beautiful homes. And you drive around and you feel like you're in Beverly Hills. Some of the right. homes are just spectacular, just gorgeous. Mm. And then you'll end up in Chiseni, which is one of the largest slums in Kampala, mm. where it's exactly the way you see slums on TV people living on top of each other, makeshift homes. So the public, the whole public school system doesn't really, they don't have, it doesn't really flow there. It's like you have to sort of pay to get an education period, right? Yeah. So the thing I did realize is though, especially in primary, the kids can go to the school, Mm -hmm. but might not be able to sit for the exam or might not be able to get their results because they were unable to pay whatever money was needed to, to be paid. Why did, why did it have to dress up in a certain, you know, garb in order to get an education? But you know something, the pride in the school uniform is pretty, is pretty amazing. Um, the kids find pride in wearing that uniform. Well, it, if education is important, uh, a school child or a school person, get that's a symbol of you getting that education, which is... Yeah. The uniform is pristine, like a soldier feels proud to be a soldier in their uniform. You know, right. it just it, you belong to a group, the group that's being educated. But it's just rough when, you, you know, it's kind of like that that thing that we create in society where. Yeah, but now it means I can't get that education unless I have mm-hmm. <laughs> because of an outfit. Exactly because of an outfit. You're right. And it's like a bouncer, like, sorry, no dress code, you know, <laughs> see you. You don't get to learn your timetables, you know. Right. Or quantum physics, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would have been a physicist if I had a nice shirt and tie, you know, <laughs> and a short khaki pants. <laughs> <laughs> and those black leather shoes. Yeah. It definitely is tough. And I even see that with the kids that we um, took off the street and sent back to school, that uniform, when they put that uniform on, you, you mm. just see a different, a different child standing in front of you. Yeah. It's probably the, some of the best clothes they'll ever own too. Right. Depends again, depends on what school you're going to. Gotcha. Right. Depends on who's making, because they have to price the uniforms towards the community in which they're targeting. So like some kids can get really good uniforms and then some of these kids, you buy those uniforms and, you know, next thing you know, they're just falling they apart. They fall off. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 
And, what, and then you outgrow them. So you have to keep having it taken in or, you know, or get yeah. new ones for when you have a growth spurt. God, that yes. sounds rough. It's not, and, and that's, that's the reason why most people don't stay in school is because of, it's because of all of that. They just, they just can't, their families just can't afford it. It's amazing because the the type of, uh, you know, like when Nigerian students or a lot of people from Uganda, when they go to England and they have, and the playing fields leveled, you see how smart some of these people are. Like they're, because of their enthusiasm for learning, they're just some of the brightest students, you know, you'll ever see. And so you kind of wonder about how much potential is being lost because of those stringent rules, you know? That is exactly why I started Chule was because I was in the village. I met so many young kids with so much potential. Mm -hmm. And I just, luckily for the kids that I met, they were taken in by an organization and their educations were being paid for and they were going to good schools. But I just kept thinking about all of those other kids because there is so much. And like you said, enthusiasm to learn. Unlike we have here in the U.S., kids are enthusiastic to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I when I, when there was a, when I lived in New Jersey as well and and there was a snow day and I and I get to skip school, I was excited. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yes, no school. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of those countries, they're bummed when it rains or there's a torrential downpour and they can't go to school. They're bummed. They're bummed. And it's really, it's really remarkable. And I was, I joined the Rotary for a little bit in Uganda and I was embarrassed because everybody at the Rotary was so accomplished. (laughs) They had Mm -hmm. doctorates and, and they wrote books and they traveled and they had these amazing positions. And I was just, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, "Uh." (laughs) I run a nonprofit, but it was, and the enthusiasm and the constant enthusiasm of learning. And it, I was like, God, I wish I had that. This is why people love America and coming to America, because mm-hmm. when they're when you're in another country and you see all the things you can do in America, you're excited. You're like, yeah. wow, I can't wait to go there and do some of those things. So that's why uh, foreigners a lot of times come here with so much excitement. But part of our democracy is that if we want to be lazy, we could be lazy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, what get... <laughs> that's what we're paying for. Hey, I want to sit on my ass. <laughs> and you can make money. Yeah. You, you can generate enough money to, <clears throat> to be okay. If you, yeah. if you don't strive for anything. Right. Like you still survive. You can still survive. And there you can't, if you don't do something, you're not going to eat today. Wow. Like nobody, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people that you meet in the village, a lot of people that you meet in the slum, it's not about tomorrow. Mm. It's, and it's about lunch and then it's about dinner. And then you wake up and you do it all over again to get through today. It's not like, uh, oh, the money I make today, let me put some aside Mm -hmm. because you, you, you can't. You just, you can't because you've got to get through whatever it is today. And do they seem stressed out by that? Or is it just kind of the norm for them? 
I, I think it's, I think it's a little bit of both. Right. And I wonder that all the time, like, is that just life? And how does it, how does it really manifest? Um, During, during COVID, we, my organization handed out masks and sanitizer, and we went to areas that um, you really shouldn't, most people don't go to. And people, you would hear, oh, the, oh, people there, they don't care. They don't believe in Corona. It wasn't that they didn't believe in it. It's just that they didn't have access to the masks, to the sanitizer, to any right. of that, any of that stuff. And I remember walking in one of the slums and seeing little kids yeah. who usually, right, when a white person is around, kids smile, they run up to you, they want to touch you, they want to talk to you. <laughs> like a leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> let me lick you. Yeah. Let me pet you, your hair, everything. Wow. In this particular slum, the, the little one, they didn't even smile. And that was the first time that I realized this is an area where there is no hope. Wow. There is no, and you're talking like you're talking little ones, four years old, five years old, at least for them, you can always, a white person can always get a smile. There was so, nothing. So they weren't just racist. <laughs> no, they're just like oh it wasn't reverse racism. No. White Mm-mm. person. Oh. Yeah. Um wow. That's crazy to be to be four years old and have no hope already. None. That's just uncomfortable thought. Yeah. So what was the thing? Because you went there, um, you were only gonna volunteer for like maybe like what a couple of months or a few six weeks. Six weeks. I was only supposed so to volunteer six for six weeks. So now you started this organization. Right. So what uh, what created that? I just kept going back, going back, going back, wanted to do something, didn't know what that was, but I knew it was going to be an education. So in 2014, um, I found a team of educators and together we, re- we designed this new curriculum. And so I really wanted to build schools. So I launched the nonprofit in 2014 to fundraise, to build schools using this new curriculum that was designed by Ugandan teachers. But nobody bought my idea. <laughs> nobody. When a you friend, say nobody, nobody in Uganda or just nobody? No, nobody in the Western world bought yeah. my idea for this particular type of school. Got it. A friend of mine said, you should get a program so you can show people that as a nonprofit, you can run a program and you can do with the money that you say you're going to do. So you can build trust. And then in 2016, in December, Ugandan volunteers said to me, we should do a Christmas party in Chiseni slum for street kids. So we threw this big party in the biggest slum. A thousand kids came. Wow. The majority of the the kids that came were boys. Mm -hmm. And these kids were sniffing something that's called mafuta, which is a combination of jet fuel and industrial glue. It's a it's a really powerful hallucinogenic. So that's what it's like their drug of choice to help them deal with this trauma. Yeah. 
they're fascinating, right? They spoke English. People told me, don't give them your phone. They're going to steal your phone. Don't let them hold your bag. They're going to steal your bag. And yet the kids were taking, the kids had my phone. One kid was holding my bag. And the more I got to know about these kids, all of these kids had left home. They came from all different areas of the, of the country. Some walked 100, 200, 300 miles to get to Kampala. And they somehow were surviving on the streets. So they left home because of the poverty. And so they go to Kampala to make a way for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So the root cause of most kids leaving home is poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that it's um, it's abuse. Physical and verbal abuse. Kids get a, a stepmother. Stepmothers don't usually like children from the first wife. Mm-hmm. So um, you, ha- you get abuse from there. Uh, not schooling, not eating. They're in the village. They hear about Kampala. They want to see Kampala. Right. So they run away. And also, I should say that Kampala is the, the capital of Uganda. It's one of the bigger cities, just so people know. Yes. It's it's the capital, right? It's the capital. Right. And so kids come there because they, they want to, they want money, maybe to go to study, maybe to give back to their families. And they get all the way to Kampala and they realize there's no job, right? There's, Mm -hmm. there's nobody there to take care of them. How old are these kids usually? Some are as young as six. Wow. So people leave home at six and try to go to make their own way. Jesus. That's crazy. Yes. Unlike us here where you say, I have to wait till I'm 18. (laughs) Yeah. Some people leave the house at 21. Yeah. (laughs) Some don't leave. (laughs) Yeah. That's still, they got their computer, their video games. They're like, I think I'm going to hang out here for a while. (laughs) live in my mom's basement. (laughs) Wow. Six years old. That's crazy. They get turned on to the mafuta because the mafuta helps suppresses their appetite, uh, keeps their body warm at night when they're sleeping on the ground. Mm, it, so that's no is jet fuel that prevalent? Where do they find jet fuel? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Because I wouldn't even know where to get jet fuel here. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm, okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> back we're, we're back now and so these kids if you see them they have this bottle hanging from their nose or they have a rag that they keep under their nose or some of them even douse their clothes in it wow so that they can smell it all the time Jesus. um and one of the boys explained to me that we sniff because it helps us to forget so they they end up banding together right they come looking for just odd jobs, right? Like uh, getting fetching water mm. for people who work in the slums. So you, you have all those restaurants and everything. So Got these it. kids will try to go get hired to do that, clean the dishes. Uh, but me. the main way that the kids make money is collecting plastic bottles and scrap metal. There was one kid named Jude who was very particular, showered every day and washed his clothes. So he was making money so that he could be clean and have nice clothes. Wow. Where did they shower, by the way? I mean, so there's public showers, um, Mm. but 
a street kid is usually chased from those from those places. So it's very hard for them to find a place to shower. It's really hard for them to find a place to go to the bathroom because they're not wanted. You see people see these kids living on the streets and they just chase them. They beat them. uh, They verbally abuse them, physically abuse them. So they really are people look at them lower than dogs. Wow. Wow. That's so it's like in a way, like how we treat uh, homeless at times. Yeah. Except we don't beat them, just ignore them or pretend we don't see them. What is the rate of them getting out of that situation? Is it pretty low? (laughs) What What I've witnessed over the last couple of years, because there are some kids that were given opportunities, just couldn't give up street life. Because yeah. we were talk- now, now we're talking about addiction, right? And it's not even just the addiction of the mafuta. It's the addiction of the life. And not being able to acclimate yourself back into society. Most especially because you don't have a foundation. You don't know how to do conflict resolution. Your, whole, your spirit has been broken. Unfortunately, when anybody ever hears that you once lived on the street, you will always be viewed as a street kid. So therefore you must be a liar. You must be a thief. Uh, You must be a, you you know, you must be the type of person who's going to look for violence to resolve everything. So these kids are so entrapped by the choice that they made when they were young to leave home. They coming out of prison here. Yes. Yes. And it is fascinating because the kid that leaves home is the smartest kid in the house, right? It's not the dumb kid. It's right. the it's the smart kid who can figure out how to be clever enough and to survive. If you get a young kid who where the mafuta has really taken over their lives, they'll just grow up to be that being who just is there, right? Taking drugs all day until the day they'll die. Then you'll have these these boys who will start to transition into gangsters and thugs. It's like a pathway to a life of crime. Yes. If you, yeah. if you don't get out, if you do not get out. Mm. So. so the system is broken, obviously. So how does your charity help? And how do you think you're helping to circumvent that or to prevent Well, right now we're not at the stage of prevention because Mm -hmm. that goes to family units and community and stuff like that. Um, And that's not our forte. And there are a lot of great organizations who are working on that. Uh, For us, we're on the streets. We we have a facility in one of the we have a facility in Chiseni, which is the largest slum. Mm -hmm. And we we conduct outreaches where we're constantly walking the streets. Uh, we try to identify new arrivals to get them off the street as quickly as possible. So they don't go down that rabbit hole. Oh, before they be, they become after, I guess there's a certain amount of time when it's just too late because they're now uh, acclimated to that way of life. And especially if you're that young. Yes. Mm. And so I, so we've discussed, if you can get a kid in the first couple of weeks, yeah, figure out why they left home, uh, we always contact families. Our main goal is to get the kids home, see where they mm-hmm. came from, understand yeah. why they left and see how we can work together with the family so that the child doesn't become a 
a permanent resident of the street. Then we have a facility, we call it a drop-in center. And it's a place where the kids can come to shower, they get two meals, they can wash their clothes. Um, we have football, we have catch-up classes in English and math. Uh, we, just got, we just got computers. And then when we identify the kids who seem very serious about wanting to change their lives, we have a home uh, that we bring them to. And that's where they start to reintegrate back into society. They have chores to be done. They, they start to go back to school. Um, we start to build the relationship back with the family. Because for us, our ultimate goal is for the kid to stay at home. So continue their education, continue with maybe skills training or something, but from home, because home is powerful. Family is actually really, really mm -hmm. crucial. So you're a, you're, so your foundation is, it's like a school. It's not a school yet. That's the, that's oh. the dream. Oh, that's gotcha. the dream gotcha. is to have our own school on the farm. And we want to integrate basic education, reading, writing, math, business literacy, computer literacy, things that young people need to be employable. And agriculture is one of the largest industries in the country. So we figured we would, we want the kids to participate in some forms of agriculture uh, and teach them how to uh, run and run a business so that they can generate income and it's not just sustaining their lives, but it's better, it's improving their lives. So that's the vision and that's, that's, that for us is the big end game. So do you get any help from the Ugandan government? At all? No, I we mean, don't at this point. At this so point, are they aware of you? Yes, they're very aware. They're very they just aware of the like, work yeah. that we're doing. So, do they treat you like one of the typical NGOs? Which actually, I guess we should mention that that stands for non-governmental organization, right? Yes. The ones that collect charities, and and a lot of them have been known to be kind of nefarious because they're using the poverty of other people to become rich. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's some of the stuff you're dealing with, uh, having to differentiate yourself from those groups. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I get very mad when I, I get very upset when I see those, those articles and that stuff. And I've witnessed it myself. I've definitely witnessed organizations who are functioning and working. And those always seem to be the, those people are always the ones who can raise the most money and don't, and then aren't doing pretty much anything. Yeah, jack shit. Yeah. Yes. It's fascinating. It's really kind of fascinating. <clears throat> and it's so, so crooked because it's like, uh, like these people are like, how can you watch a kid actually live in the streets or starve and then use them to make money for yourself and not help them? You'd be surprised how many people do it. Yeah. What I've been reading about Uganda and Kenya and Burundi and Rwanda, like they're forming this uh, East African Federation. Yes. Like they're attempting to become one country, right? Like they're unifying or something. Yes. Yes. And so because, you know, especially especially the president of Uganda, he's 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 a believer in Pan-Africa. Mm. And he feels that the country should work together not becoming one country, 
but everybody identifying and, and working together. So right, right. I sort of uh, mislabeled that. I think they're trying to do like the EU. They're trying to do what Europe yes. is doing, but yes. just in in just those countries, like just in East Africa, or like, right. Yeah, like you said, just in Uganda alone, there's how many different uh, languages or well dialects they call it. Dialects, yeah. That's the Western name for someone else's language, but yeah, that's, that's not mainstream. It's a dialect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's not one of the Latin languages, so you know, forget about that. <laughs> um, and it would be it'd be really wonderful. It would be wonderful if you can cross borders and trade with each other and have the same currency you'd be able to you'd benefit from their own resources because there's so many so many minerals and uh, so much so much in africa it's so rich uh, rich in minerals and agriculture and all this stuff and if they can allow to trade with each other like like i see with uganda from 2008 to now mm-hmm. how much it's advanced it's 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 incredible and i could leave for two months and come back and there's there's always advancement. The country in what, is in what constantly, way? you know. I think in technology. I think in industry. I think in 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 approach. Uh, now there's there's highways and freeways everywhere. When I first started going, there weren't any. Yeah, I I just I think that, and it's not it's not Uganda. You know, tech. They say there's about 150 million children living on the streets around the world. And children living on the streets in most countries are not seen as kids. The children who live on the streets, they're just not top priority. So the government is working on education. The government is working on skills training. The government is working on communities, building stronger communities, uh, better parenting, um, all of those things. I picked probably one of the most difficult areas to want to try to fix, you know, working with, with, with kids who live on the streets versus uh, orphans. And also too, we, we deal with just boys. Right. And why is it? Because the children that live full-time on the streets, meaning every day, every night, 98% of them are boys. Mm. So it's a bigger percentage. I believe the way to fix gender equality, make the world a better place is if we have better men. I think we are leaving boys behind. When you say we, who, who do you mean is leaving boys behind? I think, the, I, think, I think the NGO organizations, all of these organizations, like I always laugh when you say that it's girls, 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 and then it's girls or children. Nobody ever even uses the word, the term boys. We have fought to get more girls into school, which is great because every child should be in school, not just girls. All children should be learning. And in a country like Uganda, where people are going to get married, they're going to have children. Who are they going to marry if boys are being left behind and they can't, they're not educated and they're not skilled. So they're still going to continue to produce children, but they're not going to take care of them. Because they can't. Right. We all lose out when one group is not being seen. And then it's interesting when you find organizations that are dealing with boys, their mm-hmm. focus is always about 
how do we teach boys not to grow up to beat women? I look at my boys that we work with, they mm -hmm. don't have aggression towards women. And now I'm curious to know where does that transition happen? Mm -hmm. I think if I can get these boys to respect women, understand every female they come in contact with is their mother, their grandmother, their sister, or Auntie Jackie. So if you don't want anything bad to happen to me, then we then you don't do anything bad to anybody, any other female, and try to get them to understand what the responsibility is and what a good man is. Mm. And there's something that they can learn in school or just or having a mentor or yes. just being around. Yeah. It's not it's not something you learn on your own, just run in the streets. Mm -hmm. It's actually the opposite. And then I think when it comes to the abuse, it's because young boys have never been taught how to handle anger, frustration, don't express your feelings. We actually taught to suppress our feelings. We're not, we're not, you know, we're you, you from society, you're shown like, well, you know, a man doesn't do this or a man doesn't do that. Even though we're in modern times, like you, you don't cry, you don't, you have to be the strong one always. And I think that's unconsciously telling boys, yeah, you don't, you don't get to do what other people do. You don't like, there's a saying, nothing comes to a crying man, but more tears. I've never heard that. Yeah. Which is kind of like the type of things you learn as a man. You don't see people cry in sports unless they win, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even when in MMA or anything like that, no one cries. It's just kind of your violence and is an ex, you know, to suck, suck it up is an acceptable, uh, thing right being sorry go ahead i didn't mean to <laughs> no no you're what you're saying what you're saying is spot on it's it's and i don't and and how do you balance that right how do you teach boys to be the man the strength a provider a partner mm -hmm. but also let them know they can express themselves so in uganda for every, so they still do caning in school for discipline. Mm. And so for every one cane a girl gets, a boy gets five. So just to make it clear, so caning is in getting a spanking or getting yes. a whooping with a cane. Yes. I've seen families send the kid out to go get a stick, you know, those kind of things. Right. So you're, you people get caned to be disciplined and then they go, why are these people so violent <laughs> when they grow up? <laughs> You got your ass whooped in school, but you know, when you grow up, don't be violent. You know, it's interesting. A six-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. So she gets one cane, you get five. Because they think boys can take it. What one in four girls are sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. but research has shown that it's six in one for boys. Mm. But they feel the number is probably higher, but due to stigma, and lack of protection for boys, a lot of those cases go unreported. And most of them don't even talk about it anyway. No. Uh, most men don't talk about anything sexual happening to them that was not appropriate. Because as a man, no one really gives a damn. Or it's embarrassing if it's, if it's another man that did it. Right. You know. Mm -hmm. 
And if it's a woman you do it, they go, eh, you, you got lucky. That's how they treat you. Suck it up. You're like, yeah, but I, the person was 12. You know what I mean? And these are all, these are all people that are supposed to be protecting our children. Right. Right. I'm, but I'm curious though. Why don't you just have both? Why don't you have mm, uh, boys and girls? Um, when you take a girl who's been living on the street mm. and what she's had to do to survive, right? That's a whole different. That's a whole different intervention. Right. That we're just not. We're just not set up for. So my gift to women and girls is producing good gentlemen. Gotcha. At what point do they age out of your charity work? Well, technically when they finish a program. So even if we take a 17, 18, 19 year old um, and they do skills training, that program is a year uh, mm. where by the end of the year, they should be able to live on their own. But for us, they can, they can always come back because you never want them to falter. They're like our children. So there'll always be a place for them. But the goal is to get them to a point where they can live on their own. Uh, I mean, 10 years in the future, where do you, what do you, what would you want to happen with this charity? How do you see it running? And, you know, going back to what you said, the suffering of kids so people can make money. I would like to be forced out of my organization because there are no kids left on the street. So that would be mm. amazing. But in 10 years, I would like to have created an IT program specifically for children who have lived on the street, a, a school where these kids can come learn IT and compete in the modern day technology employment world. Um, have our farm turn into a, a commercial business where the kids who have graduated from us go back to their home areas and their franchises of our farm, the business part of our farm. Mm. And we just, we just hope that it just keeps growing and that you know, more kids can grow up to be financially independent, socially aware, good men. Yeah. Shule Foundation. Say, say the name of Shule. Shule, sorry. Shule Foundation, <laughs> which means schools in Swahili. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I should have asked that before. <laughs> Great. Yes. And, and the, you're, so you're creating a template so that other people, could, you could take it to Haiti or uh, Mogadishu or yep. you know, Mumbai. I got you. Yes. Where, where, anywhere where there's children who are living on the streets, and kids have no options. That's where we want to be because that's the reality. These kids don't have options. If somebody right. doesn't help them, they don't have options. Yeah. Thank you for doing what you're doing, by the way, <laughs> Jacqueline. That's uh... <laughs> Thank you for letting us talk about it. Uh, what would you want people to do? People that are listening to this, what, what do you need from them? Well, it, it would be great if they visit our website learn more about the work that we're doing. And if they find it interesting, uh, they want to come visit. Anybody wants to come to Uganda and visit with us, we would love to have you. What's the uh, website? We, it's Shule Foundation, which is S-H-U-L-E foundation.org. Um, we're on, of course, all the social media platforms. But um, just to learn more, and if you're interested, reach out. 
I have a question, sort of a technical question. So for every dollar that you give to your organization, how much, what percentage of it goes to the actual cause? So for us at this point, it's, it's a hundred percent. So every dollar that's given um, does not go to Shule Foundation's operational costs, expenses. So every dollar that comes in goes to our programs. So that money goes to, uh, let's say, um, feeding. Do they get food? What do they exactly get out of it? I know you have a farm, a working farm, right? Yeah, but it's not enough to it's not enough to provide. We we, we don't grow enough things. You know, you know, turning a profit. (laughs) No, we're we're definitely not turning a profit and we definitely don't produce enough food to feed our kids. So we have to it goes to buying food. It goes to transport. It goes to paying locals that work for us. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes to clothing. Uh, We have a sponsorship program. So it goes to covering school fees, um, puts kids in training medical there's a lot of a lot of kids in desperate need of medical all the money goes to our kids and the local ugandans who work for us so they too can have a better life right what do you want to say to corporations as far as they usually have a lot of money <laughs> yeah i know right corporations should be looking at this young generation especially on the continent of africa because yeah you know, Africa's coming, it's, it's, it's there and it's, it's going to play a more crucial role it's rising. in industry. It's going to be the most populated continent in about 20, yeah. 30 years. So there, and because it's the youngest, um, the youngest uh, age group. Yes. Uh, the, the average age is like 18 or something like that on the yes. entire continent. So that's a lot of people in the future. And if you're in the tech company, if you're in the tech world, it's a new frontier. It's unexplored. There's, uh, and there's uh, mental resources. The brain, the brain power from, from those people are just amazing when they actually get a chance. So they get the opportunity to do things. You know? Yes. And, and the kids are funny because the minute they get an opportunity to be on someone's smartphone, the first thing they do is create a Facebook account and an Instagram account, right. even though they don't have a phone of their own. Right, That's right. one of the first things that they do. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they already there because people get that that connects you to the entire world. Yeah. You know, that that's even if you're in a village in Uganda, you could now connect to someone in Santa Monica. That's right. right. And I would just, I would tell these ones, especially tech companies, there's a lot of untapped resources in these countries for kids, for kids who don't have any options. So to leave them out is just do is just doing everybody a disservice. It's it's bad business planning. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to talk to them, uh, their wallets, because I know that's how people respond. (laughs) (laughs) Jacqueline, thank you so much for um, sharing the story and and for what you're doing in Uganda. I'm sure they're really appreciated. And I'm sure it's bringing like it probably a rewarding feeling to know that your, your life makes a difference. Yeah, I found my place. I'm, I'm right where I belong. Yeah, that's a good feeling. (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much. And I will check in with you again. So stop, drop, and roll. Thank you for listening. This is Jacqueline Wolfson with the, say it. Shule Foundation. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)